Welcome back to another episode of the Psycho Podcast. I'm your host, Margot Underwood, and this is a place where I have the pleasure of interviewing specialists, authors, doctors, psychologists on the topics of human sexuality. This is a place where we break stigmas and bust hymens, deconstruct taboos, initiate more self-pleasure in our lives, expose alternative therapies to approach these sensitive topics. Thanks for joining me here. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest because I have infinite gratitude for the work that she's doing. Her name is Susan Morgan Taylor, and she is a specialist in women's sexuality and feminine spirituality. She is also the founder of the Pathway to Pleasure Collective and Feminine Wisdom Academy and the host of Sex Talk Cafe. She's got a lot of different avenues that she's working in and of like operates out of a very dynamic practice. Today's talk though is about love as a spiritual practice and something that is more than just a feeling but rather a state of being. She talks about how when we invite everything into our sexual experiences, we get to experience the deepest healing that we possibly can. One of the more One of the most important things that we cover today is how to say no and why it's important to be able to say no in order to figure out what yes really feels like and what it We also go over the importance of what it means to say no and when we are able to know what our no means we're able to feel out the true yeses I know that sounds confusing so just let the episode explain it all so how does it feel to kind of are you do you normally get interviewed um or are you you mostly on the interview side where both well I do a lot yeah. of interviewing and I am the guest on podcasts and other folks shows a lot too so I cool. love love being on both sides of the equation so thanks for cool. having me love it yeah of course welcome to the psycho um I am I am so, I admire you quite a bit. Um, You have such a dynamic practice and you focus on just so many different things when it comes to our sexuality and not just Mm -hmm. focusing on, you know, maybe like the insufficient relationships and how to improve. Now you like dig deep into the trauma behind what maybe we might be bringing up those, Mm -hmm. those difficulties. So um, Thank you. Yeah, I just, and then, you know, you host your own podcast, the Sex Talk Cafe, which I find to be very educational and enlightening as well. So thank you so much. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I want to start off with a quote that I found on your website. Okay. <laughs> um, because it is something that I kind of, I discovered for myself when I first started diving into my sexuality and I had a hard time uh, pinning it down and articulating it to people. So I want to mm-hmm. see kind of how you came to this conclusion. Okay. So the quote was, I believe that sex is the most direct pathway to our deepest healing and the fulfillment of our deepest human yearnings for connection and love. Mm -hmm. When we lose access to this erotic and sexual aspect of ourselves, we cut ourselves off from a part of life that holds the power to deeply heal us. Mm. Which is like, I mean, it sounds like you're referencing our sexuality as our innate power and our, our driving force and the thing that can heal us in so many way, in so many areas of our life. Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, I'm curious how you, how yeah. you came to that conclusion and if you can just elaborate on that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for selecting that particular <laughs> phrase or quote from my website. I think that's such, it's such a good one to talk about because I think that we don't tend to think of our sexuality in that way. Sexuality, is really something that's separate from the rest of our lives. It's been sectioned off as this thing that we do behind closed doors rather than as this thing that's an inherent part of our, uh, of our life energy or life force mm-hmm. and in an aspect of how we move through life and also how we relate to life and to ourselves. Um, and I think really the way that I arrived at that was really through my own journey and my own explorations around my own sexuality. When I really, really, really took it on as a, as an experiment, as a commitment, as a self-study project of like, you know, I'm really going to figure this out. I had just was really in a really heartbroken space, you know, from just relationships kind of gone wrong and sort of finding myself in that same place of really feeling that disappointment. Like I wasn't able to have that deep connection that I longed for and not really understanding why or how to create it. And, um, having really made my partners responsible for making that happen. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped and really was like, I need to just figure out my own body and how I create connection to myself. I can't expect other people to be responsible for bringing that. And so one of the things I discovered was that, you know, we really, it's the most direct entry point really for many of our, a lot of our wounding and a lot of our baggage is really held around sex. So if we go straight to the sex, it's, it's more direct. We don't have to go around it, you know, through the cognitive piece or just through the stories of he said, she said, or what happened when I was three. When we go straight to sex, it's all right there, right at the surface, if we allow it. And I think that's the part that, that gets missed a lot is that people aren't allowing that deeply vulnerable part of ourselves to come forward. Mm-hmm. So I can share an example of like how this actually like a practical way of how this played out. If you, if yeah. you'd like me to I'll give you Absolutely. a chance to, if you have any, okay. Um, so for example, you know, I was in a really beautiful, um, relationship with a man and, um, we were making love one night and I started to, he, he was so giving and I was just feeling so much love from like coming from him into me while we were uh, being intimate. And I had this moment in my had in my body of like, I don't deserve this. Like I'm an inconvenience. I didn't want to be an inconvenience to him. And so I think, you know, a lot of the habits around that, that many people have is either shove that feeling away 
um, shut down, right? Mm-hmm. We could shut our ener- sexual energy off and shut down the turn off and maybe just not engage in the sex or have it be really shallow because we think that that feeling shouldn't be there in sex. There's a lot of that kind of programming that we have around sex. I shouldn't feel anything but great. Um, so instead of doing those two things, what I did, or we talk about it, right? I don't feel, uh, I feel like I'm inconvenienced to you right now. And then we just ruin the whole, the whole moment. Right. So, so what I ended up doing instead, because I had been working with my own sexuality and my emotions and really doing that deep inner work was instead, I just breathed into that feeling in my body and I allowed myself to just receive his love. And, and it took me all the way back to a place where I felt like I was an inconvenience, like in my family of origin, um, being raised, like these memories of being an inconvenience to my mom and whether or not that was true is irrelevant. The point was, is that I had this program in me somewhere that I was an inconvenience and I, and I had siphoned off my capacity to really receive love and pleasure because I didn't want to be a burden. And so all this was going through my mind at that point, I wasn't saying anything. I was breathing into my body, breathing into the deep feelings of fear and unworthiness and and this fear that I'm in, but letting it just soften and letting his love just penetrate me. And I ended up just having tears running down my face, this huge, just emotional release, almost an orgasmic experience. But from that, it was one of the most deeply healing experiences of my entire life. And my partner had like no idea that this was going on inside of me, of right? Of course, yeah. But it was profoundly healing. And that's what I mean is like, you know, that, that pattern. Now I could have gone to therapy for 10 years and talked about that issue in my life, kept it in the mental realm and create a lot of stories around it, how my mom didn't love me the way that I needed to be loved. But you know, that, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but there's just a more direct approach. And the direct approach is that all of those things will reveal themselves to us when we, when we engage in intimacy with ourselves, with life and with others. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that. You went straight to, you confronted that, uh, I kind of want to call it a fear of, uh, you know, feeling pleasure and just, you went straight mm-hmm. to it, you confronted it and you didn't, um, you just kind of let it flow through you in that moment. Yeah. And you even cried, you know, I don't, you cried <laughs> during while you're having, inter, you know, intimacy with your partner, you're yes. like just letting yourself unravel. <laughs> and that is so beautiful. That's it's so beautiful. Juicy. Yeah, I think the crying piece is really, especially for women, our hearts are connected to our genitals. And so yeah. the crying, actually, that it's a release. Well, number one, number two, it's also a pathway into orgasm. There's actually a, the crying. We can actually cry into orgasm because it's such a deep release. And there is an aspect of our sexual energy that will also release in our yonis or our vaginas or genitals, whatever you want to refer to them as also open in response to that as our hearts open and release. So do our genitals. So it's actually an orgasmic pathway for women is through the tears and through the crying. But I've worked with so many couples and women that feel like I shouldn't cry or, or their partners think that something's wrong if she's crying. Right. Um, so, you know, we have to get all those, get all that baggage out and just really reframe what's really going on here and invite everything in, invite all of the feelings in to the sexual occasion, because that's how they can be transmuted and, and transformed. And healed. Yeah. That's beautiful. I, gosh, I definitely struggle with, with emotions during sex sometimes too. Really? Just kind of like, this is not like, no, this isn't right. Because we have that idea that this is what sex is supposed to look like. 
And you can't, if you go outside of that, then yeah, so you're going to ruin the moment or someone's going to be feeling bad. Like they did something wrong or like, am I hurting you? You know, like, right. No, my pain is, uh, it's not even, I mean, like, I I don't even want to call it pain. I mean, yes, it hurts, but it's like this natural process of, like you said, transmuting it into something that we can move through instead of hold on. Right. Right. Yeah. Because when there's love, when there's sex and love is connected to it, I mean, that's love is the greatest healing force in the whole universe. And so when you think about bringing love into the sexual encounter, you know, we're we're literally generating, creating love, literally Mm -hmm. making love, right? If we're coming at the occasion from a place of love, like we literally create more of it and it's a healing force. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Yeah. It's yeah. A, yeah. It's really powerful. And it, you know, it, I'm curious, did you go to, did you see, um, other sex therapists before you became a sex therapist? Like, did you kind of, or did you just kind of like find this practice on your own and you <laughs> kind of created your own way of healing? Yeah. Well, a little bit of both. I mean, there's a story I know that I shared with you the the details of when we were first talking about doing this um, interview here. And I, I won't go into the details of it here on the show because it just mm-hmm. doesn't translate well in, in the setting. But yeah, I did have a brief encounter with a sex therapist who is extremely skilled and it literally changed my life. And it, mm-hmm. and it literally was the point turning point for me where I realize like, my goodness, like if I could help other women learn what I just learned. And if I had the skills and training, like this person did to help them in that, I mean, this is, it was life changing. I think it's world changing, um, what that therapist helped me to do. Um, so that, you know, after having that experience, that was sort of when I decided it's definitely, I'm definitely focusing on sex therapy. It was right at the beginning of my, um, master's degree training for counseling. So I just started my master's program. So I wasn't very far into the whole process of becoming a therapist, but I Uh knew right then and there, I'm like, okay, when I get out of my basic training here, I'm specializing in sex therapy. And then from that point forward, it's been, you know, a lot of my, my own navigating in it, you know, there's a lot of different avenues I think that you can take around sex therapy. Um, there's sort of the more Western sexological approach, which there's a lot of value in that. I don't tend to resonate with it quite as much as more of the somatic approaches. And then also the more tantric, you know, the tantric and Eastern approaches that really include the spiritual aspects and the energetic aspects and the emotional aspects. It's not just a function of orgasm and physiology, which you get more of that in the Western sexology, but we're really bringing in the whole person and also the soul. Yeah. Yeah. That is, uh, that's kind of where I was like, going to ask you about this idea of sacred sexuality and like Mm -hmm. bringing in this spiritual side of yourself, because it's not, you're not necessarily referencing like relit, like a religion. Um, but what is your, uh, you know, ideology surrounding sacred sexuality? Yeah. And there's, you know, lots of different ideas out there in the world around what that term means. And I think we have to first start with what do we mean by sacred? What makes something Mm -hmm. sacred or not sacred? And, you know, my definition of that and, and my understanding of it, how it works for me and how I would teach it is it's, it's the way that we approach something and how we 
treat something. It's not the thing itself that's inherently sacred or not sacred. It's our declaration that something is sacred and the way that we choose to relate and interact with that thing. So when it comes to our sexuality, it's really about how we're approaching it. Yeah. And and what the function of the sex becomes for us. Um, For me, when I talk about sacred sexuality, it's about really using our sexual energy and our sexual identity, our sexual beingness um, as a vehicle for our deeper growth, personal growth and understanding, yeah. and ultimately for the cultivation of love. Like that that's actually the purpose of sex and sexuality. And even at a high level, it's the purpose of relationship. If we so choose to enter into a relationship where the, the main function of it is to cultivate love. It's a, it's, you know, it's not an easy practice. And I think most people mm-hmm. wouldn't really sign up for that kind of relating because it's, it's functioning on a very, very different level, um, than how most of us are coming into sex or into relationship where we're coming in to kind of get needs met, right. Which is mm-hmm. valid. That's it. That's a level of relationship, right. Getting our needs met, um, making sure our partner's needs are fulfilled, learning how to speak up for our needs. We all need to pass through that, but there's also a level where we can choose to start to interact and relate and even start to use the sexual encounter as a means for experiencing more love and knowing the divine through our own bodies, yeah. And and through, not necessarily because of another person, but in a sense, through, like it's an act of service that we potentially can give right. to our partners. Yeah, service. Absolutely. I find a lot of pleasure in, 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 you know, giving pleasure to other people and like seeing like people light up, not even like in a sexual sense either. It's kind of just like any type of service, you know, you kind of just give yourself freely to that person, but yeah. it, it what you're saying here, like, I love it because you're kind of saying that creating love and, and how I heard that was like creating love for yourself first. Right. And like, and then being able to love the life that you're living Mm -hmm. and waking up every day and, you know, find like, because you're honing in on that, uh, deeper on your deeper needs and deeper pleasures and deeper, deeper traumas that need focus, you're able to just love your life more and be able to offer that to other people. I find that. Yeah. And it's going to be different for everyone. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that, that, um, calls forth like the need also maybe to define like what, what does it mean to practice love and to cultivate love? Mm -hmm. Because I think there's a lot of confusion or just misunderstanding around what that is. Like, People tend to think it's about an emotion and feeling a certain emotion and I should Mm -hmm. feel a certain way. And if I don't, then I'm not in love or I'm not loving or I'm not practicing love. So, so the way that I define that, like love as a spiritual practice, and when we're talking about using intimacy or sex as the, the vehicle towards that, it's really about softening to the experience that we're having within us at a given time. So like that example that I gave you kind of right at the Mm -hmm. outset where I was with my partner and I started to feel uh, that feeling of unworthiness and inconvenience. So I could have hardened around that, right? And I could have avoided it or kept sort of kept the hardness around it, which keeps me in a state of contraction, in a state of disconnection, mm-hmm. in a state of invulnerability, 
so the practice of love and, and that example was me softening into that feeling and giving it permission to be there and saying yes to it and allowing myself to receive at a more deeper level than I had ever allowed myself to receive before because I received myself and therefore I was able to receive the love of my partner more deeply. And so I was expanded into a greater state of expansion or love. And we could call that orgasm as well, by the way, you know, Mm -hmm. as an expansion, the female orgasm, especially is really, it's an act of expanding. It's expanding outwards, outwards to the, to the heavens, to the cosmos and and into greater and greater um, dimensions of connection and unity and love. I love that. I love that. Uh, I love, um, (laughs) I really do because it can be so dynamic and it's, uh, it's not this one feeling. And I've always told people that, um, love is this, it's not linear, you know, it can't be quantified. Um, you can't, uh, gosh, it's kind of one of my biggest pet peeves when someone is like saying that, uh, well, if you give this person, you know, this your love over here, I'm only going to get 50% of your love. And I'm like, mm, that's not how it is. This, this evolving, this like growing this, you know, left and right and up and down and always changing yeah, dynamic. feeling. Is, totally. And that, that's such a limited and even oh, distorted sure. understanding of love. I mean, love at its core essence has nothing to do with another person. And that's where we also get really uh, misguided we think it's about another person, but it's at least in the context of love as a practice and a deep, deep, the highest spiritual practice is the practice of love and the cultivation of love. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking in those terms and in the, in the context of sacred intimacy and sacred sexuality, love has nothing to do with another person. It's not about another person. Now it can show up in that way through our loving presence and through our desire to give and to be of service but ultimately, it's an inner cultivation of our own, uh, like an inner state of our beingness mm-hmm. in our capacity mm-hmm. to deeply accept and allow and receive everything that's happening within us, even if it doesn't feel good or loving yeah. at the time. And it can't like, like, I, I kind of I have this like strange idea, like love doesn't always manifest in this, you know, um, like ooey gooey, like warm feeling. Like sometimes right. it can become more volatile and that's when you're like setting hard boundaries and you're like, yes. no, you know, I have to do this so that I can stay in this state of exactly. love. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think what you're speaking to is Beautiful. so important. And that's really the, the really most, the most fundamental aspect of self love. And I don't necessarily mean Mm -hmm. self-love and like, I'm going to go self-pleasure and masturbate. That's certainly a form of Mm -hmm. self-love, but self-love is really about self-honoring and a deep compassion towards one's own self. And which, like you said, it looks like setting boundaries and standing firm. And if we need to, like, if that's truly what we know is in our best out of our discernment in a situation, that's truly what our intuition and what we're feeling, hearing, knowing, and sensing to honor that. And I think, 
this has been a, just a big part of my ongoing learning is really around that lesson of the self honoring, because I think especially as women, we're sort of trained to just give, even when you don't really want to give, you're expected to give and you're supposed to like it, even if you don't really like it. And, and so we, you know, there's a lot of unwinding that needs to happen and it can be very, very hard, particularly for women. And, and honestly, that's why so many women do end up shutting down to sex over time because they're in the state of giving. I just have to please my partner. There's nothing in it for me. It's all about him. And so we just shut down. And so that unlearning is really, a, it's a process that we take of really understanding that we're, we're worth it. And we have to, no one's going to make us worthy. We have to mm -hmm. give ourselves permission to receive and, and to be worthy. And even mm -hmm. like in my, my example, where I was feeling like an inconvenience, that's, that's a big storyline that a lot of women have. So we don't receive, we cut ourselves off from that receiving, but nobody can fix that for us. Mm -hmm. So as we resolve it within ourselves and start to just expand and make space around some of those feelings, that's how we um, practice love practice receiving yeah. first self-honoring what would you uh, give our you know as a piece of guidance how would you you know tell someone to kind of start cultivating that self-honoring inside of them like mm -hmm. because meditation is so I mean it's great I love meditating um but it's not for everyone you know, right. And, but it also manifests on other practices, you know, like driving can be a form of meditation or, you know, just yeah. simple day-to-day -day tasks. Yeah, absolutely. Is there something I mean, specific? Yeah. Yeah. There's so many different kinds of meditation too. Like, I think that, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's such a broad term. I think I hear what you're saying on that. And uh, I think you're right. And, and honestly, you know, the, the way that, the self-honoring is showing up is through how we're relating. It's through the relationship. That's the place that we're going to see it the most clearly, potentially, mm -hmm. if we learn how to see it. And the best place to start is to learn how to say no. Yeah. And, yeah, and a lot you. of times for a lot of people, like if you've been really bad at that piece for a long time, we have to slow down enough to start to learn how to feel our all right, what is a genuine yes? What's a genuine no? Because I know like something that I would do a lot is like, I would feel like, oh, I don't really want to do that. But then I would talk myself out of it. Like, oh, but I should. And I don't want to appear selfish or, you know, right. I'll just, I'll just do right. And so many of us will have that initial gut feeling, but we've learned to shut it down and, and then to go up here and to rationalize why we should do something that really we know we don't want to do or isn't really good for us. So undoing that little piece first, and it just, it's about giving yourself permission to slow down and to really feel, I made this, I made this commitment to myself. This was last, about last year or so. And I, I decided like I was not going to say yes or no until I knew for sure that I was like absolutely a clear yes or a clear no. Cause sometimes like we're right. in the on the spot. Right. And be like, we have to say yes or no. Right. But like, I made this, like, I'm just going to just not respond until I really take time to feel if I'm a clear yes or a clear no. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's the work and that's what it takes in order to be able to get to that point of, um, the self-honoring, learning how to say no, learning how to that. feel what's a yes or what's yeah. a no. And that's usually the harder part, learning how to feel your own body. Cause we've been like totally conditioned out of that. Disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it just it kind of reminds me, I did an episode with a somatic sexologist who emphasized on that mind-body connection and how saying no or just listening to our bodies, um, it mends that connection because yeah. each time we say yes to a cup of coffee that we actually don't want, mm-hmm. um, we're creating more distrust in our bodies. Absolutely. And, and it, it snowballs into all these other situations and yes. you find yourself compromising, you know, your worth and yeah. What a great, what a great uh, piece of advice. Great place to start. It's so hard though. It is not the easiest thing to do. Um, but I think yeah, it, it like your hard. little experiment of, uh, and I think you could add on to it by saying, by being honest with whoever's asking you that question and by just saying like, you know, I'm not sure right now. So, and, and to honor you, I want, you know, mm-hmm. to give my, my, my all, if you wanted me to participate or whatever, I want to be present for that. Yeah. And if I'm not, I'll probably just take away from the whole situation. And I mean, I was actually feeling that the other night, someone, I was rock climbing and this group of people are like, come, you know, come join us. And I was like, I'm just not like in a socializing mood right now. And I'm just, mm-hmm. I just need to be with myself, you know, and it wasn't yeah. like because of them or anything. It was just something right. I was going through. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what makes that so hard, like what you did in that situation, it sounds like you did a great job at it. And I know like the things that I'll hear and, and I mean, I've, it's happened to me too, you know, and it still comes up. It's not a thing that just goes away because we're more right. conscious or we're practicing or we're better at like, I confront this probably on a daily basis still, but I think like, you know, the, the, the obstacles to that, to this deep self-love and the self-honoring and the ability to say no is also the reactions of other people because other people are master guilt trippers without it's not sometimes they're purposely <laughs> no doing no, but like the, the guilt, manipulation through guilt is such a subtle and covert, um, tactic that we almost all of us have used it at some point or another. And it's so subtle and just sort of ingrained in how we do relationships that it can be hard to notice that that's what's going on. So, you know, there's sometimes the other person will feel rejected So they'll go mope around or they'll say a comment that makes you feel like you should feel bad because you're inconveniencing me by not wanting to spend time with me, not giving me what I want. Like, so there's all these kind of weird things going on under the surface that can make it very hard to honor ourselves in that way. But the truth is, and one of my teachers um, said this, and I I find it to be very, very true. If if we're not, we don't have access to our no to a genuine no, then you'll never be able to trust the yes. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Because, right, yeah, because when we, when we don't have access to no, we're saying yes a lot when we mean no. And so the yes isn't, oftentimes won't be authentic either, or it will be muddied yeah. or murky. So it's really about finding the the no and the yes and the no in the body and the maybe. Sometimes it's a gray area. Sometimes genuinely it's a, right. it's a maybe. So what do those three things feel like on a, on a somatic level? level. And that's a, you know, it's cultivation that doesn't necessarily many times doesn't come easy for most people. Yeah, it's hard. The, uh, (laughs) I, I just recently kind of learned that, um, through this, this other podcast that I listened to called the Dharma punks and he's a Buddhist psychologist and he incorporates, um, uh, science and Buddhist philosophy. And 
he it's just it was so simple he's like if you're anxious and you're in a social it, I think the episode was called surviving social gatherings <laughs> I was like ah, yes I need to know how to do this <laughs> um and he's like just be honest if you're feeling anxious be honest with that anxiety be honest with yeah. someone about it because then you're creating a bond with that person immediately you know you're being honest and and then maybe yeah. someone else will open up and be like you know I'm kind of feeling a little awkward too and now we can actually relate we don't have to perform anymore exactly. which just inherently creates more anxiety <laughs> absolutely yeah anytime we're trying to control or not feel it's just creating more tension and more more of the thing that we don't want to be feeling right <laughs> like if anyone's ever told you like hey calm down doesn't that just piss you off more <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah it, especially in a in a in a yelling um context <laughs> it's like really you think that's gonna help me <laughs> right, right? no nope, that just doesn't breathe work. totally but I love that too you know what you just shared and I think that the first person that we have to tell is ourselves we've got to yeah. like let it be okay with ourselves like wow I am feeling totally anxious like you know that's the piece too is that self-intimacy and yeah. then I love that too just I think that's so right on because it sort of breaks the stigma around it too and we mm -hmm confide and become vulnerable with someone else and it's so true I'm sure many other people in that particular setting social settings it's so true other people are nervous and shy or anxious or awkward or whatever mm -hmm. yeah I loved it it was so simple and it was just yeah. like oh why I it's not something that I it's not my go-to in a social <laughs> situation to just be like why is yeah, that? You know, I'm kind of <laughs> not in it like you are right now and that's okay. Um, yeah. It's okay yeah. to be that way. Yep. So, um, I, that was a beautiful, beautiful. I was not expecting to kind of expand on this like practice <laughs> of love, but that is, um, a new, fairly new for me to, to hear about. So, um, I'm sure that's something that you, um, incorporate a lot into your private practice and into, um, the, pathway to pleasure collective that you mm -hmm. have going on. Um, I would love to hear more about the pathway to pleasure um, and like why you started, started mm -hmm. that and kind of what it looks like. Yeah. Like my business pathway to pleasure specifically, because yeah. I have a program named pathway to pleasure too. Um, yeah. I mean, pathway to pleasure collective is really, it's my space to bring my gifts to the world and mm -hmm. eventually my vision with it and why it's the collective and not just pathway to pleasure is I do envision having other um, types of practitioners who are part of that, who are serving uh, in the realm of sexuality, but perhaps even in a, a different way than how I can or, mm -hmm. or choose to work with clients. Um, and it's just my vision to really normalize the conversation on sexuality and particularly women's sexuality, because I don't think that there's really enough resources out there for women to really be able to access their sexuality in a healthy way. And I think I bring a, a certain approach to it and a certain flavor that makes it feel very safe for a lot of women, um, yeah. you know, who might not otherwise feel comfortable with their sexuality or, or even the thought of exploring it. So yeah, you're so on point about the lack of resources out there. Have you heard of mm -hmm. omgyes.com? I have. Oh, that's a great I, website. I right? love that. It's yeah, so that's a cool. wonderful 
wonderful resource to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, I mean, for men, women, anywhere yeah. in between uh, couples, yeah. it's, uh, it's so educational and very explicit. Like, I just love how they have real women on there with real vaginas, like, like literally, and it's very well done. It's educational. It's not anything that's like, I mean, it's a little shocking at first. Cause like, literally like they're really <laughs> educating you like, yeah. Oh, but it's beautiful. It's like, wow. Yeah. I mean, for a woman who's maybe doesn't even feel comfortable coming to someone like me or reaching out for professional help, like that is such a beautiful resource as a place I think to get started. You yeah. know, we have to like know what's going on down there before we're going to ever be able to help a partner know yeah. us better, you know? Yeah, I love it. It was, I don't know how I discovered it, but it, for the people who are listening, it's a, it's a resource and now they have a, like a part one and a part two kind of <laughs> that is solely focused on, on female pleasure and, um, any, I think it's all mostly, uh, vaginal stimulation. I don't really know if there's any anal, there might be some like anal stimulation on there too. I, I haven't mm-hmm. looked at it in a while, but yeah. it's a one-time fee. It's like a hundred bucks for a lifetime membership. So I think it's like, mm. I just think it's a great place to start. Yeah, I think what's neat about it too, yeah, is that it, it's really affirming of the diversity of how women experience pleasure because it's not the same mm. for all of us. And that's one of the things I really loved about it, like different women describing how they uh, reach orgasm through self-pleasure. Mm. Like here's what works for me. And ooh, when I touch right there, I feel this. And then if I just kind of go real slowly on this part and then keep the rhythm going, then it, then it, that's what works for me. And then the next woman has a totally different approach that she's discovered that works for her. So it's just a beautiful way to really normalize the diversity that we have, particularly as women around our own sexuality. Cool. I'm so glad you, you've heard of it. Yeah. Um, so in particular, cause I know, and you've mentioned it quite a few times, which is awesome. Why did you decide to focus on feminine sexuality? And I know you do work with men as well, and we'll kind of touch on some of the things you do with them, but female sexuality and spirituality, uh, primarily is, you know, your focus. So kind of want to understand the the drive behind that. Yeah. I mean, I think because I am female bodied, right. So I, Mm -hmm. that's the experience that I'm having. Um, and I think that I had, you know, not being super, it's not that I was, I was certainly not like closed off to sex. Um, when I was fairly sexual, you know, my teens and twenties and such, like I explored, I I self-pleasured, but I ended up completely shutting down and losing interest in sex. When I got married, I had kids and and just really, really shifted for me. And so I think for me, it was sort of when I unraveled that whole piece and what was really going on, like why I shut down, um, and started to like undo the shutdown and the type of awakening that I had from that, uh, was so liberating. Yeah. It was so liberating. It was, you know, the realization just all listening in a nutshell, it was of experiential somatic 
moment, right, in the body experientially where I, I truly had like the download <laughs> physically, spiritually, and emotionally and orgasmically that love, pleasure, and orgasm, it doesn't come from outside of us. Like it's not something anyone can give. Nobody can actually give us pleasure, actually. Pleasure, mm -hmm. pleasure is something that actually happens within our own bodies. Like it's a physiological response to, um, to stimulus, to external stimulus, potentially even internal stimulus. It's an internal response that that's what pleasure is. And it's, so it's not something that anybody can actually give to us. It's something that, that has to be cultivated. And, and it's something that is already there, and the same is true with love. The same is true with orgasm. These are natural states that are actually existing right now within us, within you, within me in this moment that, that we just, the reason that we don't tend to experience it that way is because we have these obstacles to pleasure. We have things in the way. And those things are things like tension, uh, which could be like mental tension, thinking up too much up in the head and thinking not connected to the body it can be physical tension and, and especially emotional tension where we're trying to not feel right. Oh, I shouldn't feel that way. Those things and, and, not, and not feeling safe, maybe to be vulnerable or to feel those things. Right. We have a lot. You know, I had a lot of conditioning around. It's not OK to feel angry in my family of origin. So I'd shut everything down. Mm -hmm. So I just learned to be numb. Yeah. So really it's a path of like undoing those obstacles to being able to recognize and experience what's already inherently there. So when I, when that moment hit and I had actually removed enough of those barriers within me, I just was like, the world would be such a different place if more women had access to this. Literally. I mean, I believe the way that we have sex and make love literally can change the world. And that, that starting point of that really begins with the feminine. Part of that is because the feminine force is actually the, it's actually the driving guiding force through receptivity. It's the force that invites the masculine force towards it. Because so if you think about the masculine is the penetrative force, right? Mm -hmm. The feminine is like the rose. And if you think about a rose, you cannot force a rose to bloom. You right. can't force it. I mean, you can try, but if the rose <laughs> is not ready to bloom or refuses to bloom, like that's going to be pretty frustrating. You might get a little ways in, but that's right. So, so there's so much more power that women truly have in this arena of sex and women just don't know that we think it's all a man's game, mm -hmm. but we, I mean, people pay for pussy. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Oh yes, they do. Question <laughs> in the world, ladies. So that thing you got between your legs, that is valuable. Absolutely. Pay for that shit. Yeah. Right. And so, so I know there's a lot of trauma right around sort of the, the masculine and, and the, you know, rape culture and, and all that. And, you know, that's obviously some collective healing work, but, but at the end of the day, like we have so much more power than I think we realize as women. And it's not power to be misused, but it's power that we can use to truly generate more love that we can mm -hmm. unite love with sex rather than the two being disconnected. And, you know, that's really why it's not appealing to a lot of women after a period of time, because it's, it feels like it's just sex. Yeah. There's a whole piece missing. And so, but as women, it's really, I believe our, divine act of love and service to the world to unite love, to bring sex and love back together. Mm -hmm. And we do that through our, through our bodies and also through our partnerships. Yeah. That's beautiful. I, you're not the first person to say that, uh, the feminine, um, spirituality and sexuality is kind of that driving force. And 
kind of like what would you say to men who would kind of feel offended by that mm-hmm. um comment yeah I'm what would I say to men that would feel offended <laughs> like, I can imagine myself saying that to um a man and him being like well what about this you know what about equality that's like you know, the, you know I feel like that's you know, you're putting yourself above me when in reality that's not really at all well, what's happening yeah, I mean, I would say we can look to nature, mm-hmm. all right? We can look to the forces of nature and the way that nature works, right? And if you look at, for example, you know, a river, this is an analogy that's used a lot of times, but a river, or, you know, might take a long time, but it has the power to carve holes in the rocks, mm-hmm. right? It actually, in a way, forms the shape. If you throw a rock in a river, Yeah, you could shift the flow of the river. Sure. But it's the feminine force that is really the, and it's not that one, it's not like one is better than the other. One is stronger than the other. And I think a man, if somebody responded that way, I mean, it's coming from ego, right? And it's not, you know, it's not about one sex or gender being better than another, you know, but I didn't make up the rules of yin and yang, positive and negative, masculine and feminine. Because a lot of women would think like, well, to be surrendered is weak. Mm-hmm. Right. But to be in, in surrender is really not. I mean, if you think about it, you're flowing with and that's, you know, there's whole martial art forms that are founded. The, uh, it's um, Aikido is the one martial art form that is very, I believe, very fe- And I don't study Aikido, but um, I understand a little bit about the dynamics of it. And it's really about when your opponent comes at you, the Aikido master would flow with that and around. Uh-huh. And so instead of, you know, another martial art from maybe like karate, which is more linear and coming at the person, those are two very different functions. And so to flow with is an extremely powerful stance. It's, it's just about learning how to harness and use that energy. Mm-hmm. You can harness the masculine energy too, and use it in a very powerful way to crush and destroy. You know I mean? It's also strong, but the okay. strongest is the union of the two. We, you know, if the masculine right. itself can become hardened and cracked and it can burn out very quickly. And the feminine by itself can become, uh, can become chaotic and disorganized mm-hmm. and, uh, and weak in a sense, mm-hmm. if it's, you know, so you need both of them. And so both are really important. Um, and I would, I would say also like, well, just examine the dynamic who has, who has the true yes or no. Right. You know, like, why are you always begging for sex? Like yeah. from her, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe yeah. it's the other way around that happens too. So it I don't does, want to make yeah. it a gendered thing, but, um, it's the receptive force that really, has the power to sort of draw that masculine force out. Absolutely. And a lot of women don't realize that it's the magnetism of the feminine. The feminine is magnetic. That's just the yeah. quality of the feminine. It draws things to it rather than having to go out and get that's the masculine. So mm-hmm. both are, are great. We need both, but the feminine can do that through a non-doing and just through magnetizing. Mm-hmm. And men embody that, you know, we all have that yin and yang inside of us, that duality, yes. Um, so, and when you're working with men, uh, how do you, um, show them different ways to kind of embrace that feminine, um, spirituality and sexuality inside of themselves? Oh, well, you know, a lot of it, the feminine aspect is the feeling nature, 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's really when we talk about feminine spirituality in a, in a male bodied person could certainly be in practice, a feminine spiritual path. because It's not about gender. It's more about an approach. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's not always appropriate for for men. But nonetheless, it's really about the feeling capacity. So for men, what a lot of men tend to need help with is connecting the heart with the penis. Yeah. <laughs> so some of it's just a practice of awareness and, and learning how to connect those two points through awareness practices or mindfulness mm-hmm. practices or meditation practices, whatever you want to refer to that as. That's one way. And, and to help them learn how to be more embodied and less... Yeah up here because fantasy and porn use, which is higher, you know, with most men, um, that takes us out of the body and into the mental capacity. So it's really just about helping them cultivate, um, the focus on the somatic and the sensations happening in the body. And then Mm -hmm. also, um, getting away from goal orientation, Mm -hmm. which so many women to, you know, also just society in general has a really big obsession with getting to the goal of orgasm, but a feminine approach to sex, if we're going to start including the feminine element as an energy and as a presence, one of the steps to that is to remove orgasm as the goal. So we don't have a goal. The goal, if anything, is just to be present and to feel what's happening in the body. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very tough shift to make. And it's a, it's tends to be many times a little more, more of a difficult shift for most men. Because then they tend to think, well, then what's in it? What's the point? Because mm-hmm. it's all about the cherry on top. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just more of the case for most men. I think maybe because they tend to only have one orgasm most of the time. Whereas women, we can have multiples. Men yeah. can have multiple orgasms too, but yes, most men can, yeah. that I've encountered, they, that's a, a path that has to be cultivated. And I haven't met that many men in the world that have actually taken that on as a practice or are that interested in. But that's why actually you would want to learn another approach to sex and to learn to incorporate and honor the feminine element in sex through slowing down, um, feeling the sensations in your own body more, which by the way, cultivates your capacity to sense your partner better. That's actually what ends up happening as we focus on our own bodies first. And then removing that idea that orgasm is the destination that we're getting to get rid of the goal. So the encounter becomes it's honoring the feminine element. Yeah. And inside of that, we actually open a gateway to all different kinds of experiences that you can experience that you won't be able to have when you're just going for the goal of orgasm in a very linear fashion. You just, you, there has to be space opened for the feminine to thrive and to expand. And then also to be able to offer her gifts, which are things like full body orgasms, valley orgasms, um, multiple orgasms for women and men. And then the deeper orgasms like a cervical or G spot orgasms, particularly the cervical orgasms really require much more spaciousness, more trust, more time, more expansion, just Mm -hmm. to really drop. It's a much, much deeper layer that many women don't ever get to experience that. And that's partly just because of how we have been conditioned to approach sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's always so fast. (laughs) Always so fast. And yeah, you're right. Very goal oriented. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure you've kind of noticed some, uh, patterns that kind of create that disconnect in, uh, in the heart space and in the genitals. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, and I know that one of your specialties is circumcision healing. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, so there's a disconnect happening here between the heart space and the genitals and it's happening with women too. So I'd like to hear your take on, um, 
what, what kind of causes that disconnect in women? And then, uh, how, how same thing with men and like how mm-hmm. that circumcision healing comes into play. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think too, well, there's probably some overlap there. I mean, I think a lot of it is our social conditioning, mm-hmm. right? Whereas men are really, there's a lot of permission for men to be very, very sexual right out of the gate, mm-hmm. um, but not so much permission for them to be more emotional and tender socially. You know, there's a stigma on that for a man. So we're sort of conditioned in these ways without even realizing it. Uh, for women, it's the opposite. There's a lot of shame and ridicule for being sexual and for exploring our sexuality, but it's mm-hmm. totally okay to cry and to be soft and to be vulnerable and, and to be, you know, these things that are considered more feminine. So there's that piece, which I think is probably the biggest contributor. And then, you know, on maybe a broader perspective, I think that the gifts that the masculine, you know, if we're looking at love and sex as a sacred practice and a way to cultivate, you know, the Taoists would look at it as a cultivation of harmony and balance of the male and female polarities. So sex and and relationship are a way that we would do that in the Taoist tradition. Um, The masculine brings the gift of, helping the woman open her sex center and the woman brings the gift of love of you okay. and helping the man open his, his heart center. So together they're mm-hmm. both, we need both. And so together they actually work in harmony to help one another harmonize. That's an act of service in the cultivation of love. Right. Love it. Yes. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, yeah. The circumcision healing. Oh my gosh. We might need to do another podcast. I know. <laughs> we'll just have to briefly touch on this because yeah. it is so, um, I just think planting the seed and planting yeah. the idea right now is something that I, yeah, really I think what on. I want to say first, before I dive into my soapbox on this is that, you know, anybody listening just to keep an open mind and to, and to dig deeper and to question what you believe about the practice of circumcision, like before you make a, you know, a judgment either way around like what I'm about to share about it, like just, just take a little bit deeper, do some research, watch the net. Uh, I don't think it's on Netflix anymore, but watch American circumcision, like Google mm-hmm. search it. Um, Brendan Murata is an amazing documentary filmmaker who actually lives right here in Austin where I live. Um, it's a, it's really, really eye opening, and it kind of gives, um, you know, it gives the full picture. So I would just say, just dig deeper, do a little more research. Yeah. Don't believe just what you think is true because that's what you've been told. Um, circumcision, you know, I think how that contributes to the disconnect of love and sex. It, it's the very first sexual experience that a baby boy has is the experience of trauma to his sexual organ. Yeah. And many times there's not uh, anesthesia used. Sometimes right. if it is, it's usually not, they don't let it sit long enough to actually, um, kick in. So there's, it's extreme amount of pain for the baby boy. And, you know, people will say, well, a lot of times I just fall asleep right afterwards. Well, that's actually a trauma response. Mm -hmm. And like, that's no joke. This is scientific study. True. Uh, It's a trauma response, the falling asleep. So it's um, an extremely traumatic event that happens. It's their very first sexual experience. You know, yeah. many times too, when there's touch happening down there, little boys, the babies will get little, they'll get erections when they're being prepped for the, you know, they're cleansing a water, they'll mm-hmm. get erections. So there's a, an erection, pleasure, and then an immediate pain. Yeah. So we cannot underestimate, and you might say, oh, well, it's just a baby they don't remember. Well, what we know to be true 
is that the body does remember the body yeah. keeps the score. And when yes. we're talking, the body does remember, and particularly when it's traumatic or highly painful, and there's not the capacity to process that, right? It's just feelings and sensations and fear that gets embedded into our nervous system. So absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the body will remember even on an infant. Um, and there's evidence for, you know, there's psychological and scientific evidence for how these things work and how trauma is actually stored in the body. So mm -hmm. I absolutely, I don't think that you can argue that doesn't, if we're looking at it through that lens, we can't say that it doesn't have an effect on our sexual psychology and our sexual health as a society, because what we do to either gender affects all genders, both genders, all genders. What we do to little boys affects women. Cause I'll get that too. Like somebody said, I did a whole bunch of like, got on my soapbox like a year or two ago <laughs> on social media with it. I just was like, oh my God, I just really passionate about just educating and spreading the word. But someone kind of said like, you should be talking about women's issues and female circumcision in, in Africa. You know, why are you so focused on male infant circumcision in America? Right. And you know, you should be focusing on women's issues. And my response to that was like, this does affect women. Yeah. This absolutely affects women because when the, when the penis is altered in that way, the nature of sex changes when there's no force. And I think so, so many people don't know this, but, but there has to be more thrusting and more friction and usually more pressure for a man to, to get that stimulation that he needs from mm -hmm. sex to be able to feel enough so that he has pleasure and can orgasm and, and all that. When there's a foreskin, the finer subtler movements, he'll still mm -hmm. feel a lot because the foreskin is actually sliding over the glands of the penis. It's providing like a self-pleasure function right. to the penis. So without that, he has to use the woman's body to get that same amount of stimulation. And so for, for women, our bodies really actually aren't, we're, I mean, we're designed to take a pounding. Don't get me wrong, yeah. <laughs> but that's also usually something we have to warm up to. We have to be really open and really ready. Yeah. And for a lot of women, there, it's too much too fast. And, and a lot of that heavy thrusting doesn't really necessarily for a lot of women that doesn't feel great for a lot of women. It's fine. And it's not a problem for a lot of men. It's not a problem either, but there's a significant portion of people for who it is a problem. And it doesn't, feel great. So women in the vagina too, when there's a lot of that, like, um, a lot of friction, a lot of thrusting and rubbing all the time, over time, the vagina actually hardens as well. Mm -hmm. And it starts to lose its capacity for sensitivity and, and subtler sensations. Um, so I think that, you know, the effects are really far reaching. And I think mm -hmm. why though, a lot of people don't, why it's such a hard issue to look at and to admit that maybe this is not a good idea. There's a lot of reasons, but I think one of them is because, and I'll hear men say this too, well, I'm fine or it's already done. So why, why should I think about it? You know, I can't go back, can't undo what was done. Mm -hmm. And that's true. But we also, you you cannot heal something or change a pattern, right? We're going to keep doing this to little boys from here on out. If we don't start to really dig deep and, and look at the consequences of it, we can't fix shift right. any of that. If we're not actually acknowledging the loss, if we're in denial of it, we can't do anything different. Mm -hmm. So you have to actually see and be willing to see. And there's many brave men out there in this movement. It's called intactivism. 
uh, who have taken the time to, you know, or have really suffered. There's a lot more men out there that suffer that you don't even know about because there's really no support for these men right. uh, out there. You know, and then they're stigmatized if they speak up about it. I had a man that I was working with on this issue specifically for circumcision related issues. And the key tried to seek the help of a therapist and he basically was laughed out of the therapy room. So, so, right. So there's no, you know, there's a lot of stigma for men speaking up around how this has affected them and who wants to feel like they're somehow deficient Right. right. I would never, I mean, and I don't want to say that circumcised men are deficient. I don't mean to imply that, but I can imagine that the people who, who do struggle with this, that they pro- they feel that way. Like there's Absolutely. something that's been taken from them that they had no say. Yeah. In. No, it's heartbreaking. Uh, and it's, I was talking about it last night with a friend and it originated, you know, thousands of years ago when disease was, um, you know, trying to be prevented because we didn't have the best cleaning processes, I guess. But of course, like you'll have to tell me more about that because I I have different understandings of the origins of it. But yeah, I will from what from our conversation. So he had just like listened to the whole Bible from front to back. And he was talking about how like pretty much all of the practices that all the protocols and all these like very punitive rules were solely to prevent disease and stay alive basically as a civilization. Um, and this like coming clean before God thing was more just more literally not it, it, it changed into a more like have a clean spirituality. Um, but it's, he he theorizes that it's more of a no like physically clean your body because you're coming before a a different being maybe an Mm -hmm. alien type being that can't be um you know infected uh so it was just a really fascinating thing of course we have taken that practice and we've continued using it without even thinking about the repercussions of yeah, I mean, I know the the Judaic traditions. You know, there are a lot of the rules and in a lot of and, you know the dietary restrictions and um, mm-hmm. you know in the, in the tribes of taking the bodies outside of the uh, tribe for seven days and anyone who had touched the body wasn't allowed back in. The, all of that stuff, from my understanding, and uh, you know, it was those were rituals that actually did keep the Jewish nation alive over a lot of other people that died. And I don't know that I've ever, I don't know that circumcision, I have not understood it as a cleanliness practice within the Judaic tradition more. um, So it being a way to mark God's people aside, right? It was a way to mark that they're different, but Uh through the circumcision to be able to tell that they're, they're different. Yeah. Um, the Jewish circumcision too, in the ancient days, wasn't what we do today. It was just the tip of the foreskin, a a little portion of it. So what we do today in the Western world is the entire foreskin, which is very drastic and its connection to cleanliness from my understanding goes back to, it was actually done as a way to, in the Victorian times where it got really popularized as a way to prevent little boys from masturbating because masturbation was considered a sin. And so they thought that by circumcision, that that would deter 
masturbation. And then somehow along the way it got connected to this cleanliness thing. And that could okay. that maybe is what your friend is talking about, the purity before God. And if you're not mm-hmm. masturbating, if you masturbate, you're dirty. So if you don't, I mean, I'm just wondering, maybe that's where that cleanliness piece gets tied in. But there's a whole long history of it. And then they're, they're sort yeah. of always kind of looking for a, uh, it's like, what is Brendan Murata? What does he say? I heard him in an interview. Um, that's the filmmaker of American Circumcision. He right. said something like, it's a, it's a cure looking for a disease. Like there's, there's really no, Interesting. it's not cleaner. It's not necessarily right. cleaner. No, no, no. There's no, no illness that it's really solving, not in an right. infant. You know, there's even stuff later down the line is very rare and almost never affects infant boys or young men like penile cancer or um, phimosis, which is where the foreskin gets stuck to the head of the penis. That That's really severe. That usually happens in teenage or early 20s, and that can be resolved at that time if circumcision is necessary to resolve it. That can be done at that time. It's a very rare condition. So we keep making up these reasons about why we need to keep circumcision. Mm-hmm but I don't think we're looking enough at the the negative impacts of it and where it originated. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a lot more, uh, uh, deep seated and controlling than, than what is put out there to us to understand. I mean, that's what I mean. Like we, we need to just dig deeper. Like one Mm -hmm. of the reasons I do like talking on this topic is just to maybe someone listening to this will take the time to watch American circumcision and decide for yourself, but really weigh all the evidence before you take a stance on it. Like really, really, really weigh all the evidence. Yeah. What's actually true and and question, question what you've been told. I mean, we used to do in in America, you know, what was it? It was tonsillectomies were like routine procedures that they would do on kids. And that was a prophylactic. They did it because they thought that it would reduce respiratory infections. Right. And and so it was just done. We're just going to do that. That way you won't get sick as much. You'll be healthier. But that didn't actually pan out to be true. Like over time, they realized like, well, like it's not really reducing respiratory infections. And this was a really traumatic experience for children. So they stopped doing it as a routine procedure. So circumcision, male infant circumcision is really, it's the same kind of thing. We keep doing it because we say, oh, it's going to prevent penile cancer or prevent all these other challenges that are not even, they don't even have, it might prevent... (laughs) I don't even know. Oh, female you from stepping into your pleasure. (laughs) Exactly. Um, You know, but there's no evidence for that. So, so again, it's just sort of this routine thing that we do and we don't question it. I think a lot of people don't, aren't even given the resources to really understand why maybe they should question just something that we just do sort of point blank without thinking about it. Um, you know, but little girls get bladder infections like eight times more frequently than little boys do, or, mm-hmm. you know, because of how our anatomy, but we're not down there like cutting the labia off at birth or removing the clitoral hood as a way to keep it cleaner. I mean, soap and water do a pretty good job. And if yeah. not, there's things like antibiotics that can help with a bladder infection. We don't need to cut part of the body off because it reduces the chances of something that may or may not happen at some point in the distant future. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you for um, kind of touching on this with us. I can tell you're really passionate about it. And I feel, yeah. you know, I feel what you're feeling right now is um, that compassion that is so often overlooked when it comes to um, 
to circumcision and, and the trauma that men live with uh, all through their life without even, you know, really giving it any thought. So, yeah. And some men and many men are not, you know, there's plenty of men who I think don't feel that there's any impact on them or they're not aware of it. And that's totally valid too. I don't want to be out there saying you should be feeling some certain way because, you know, not at all. But I think what we don't realize is there's a significantly larger portion of men, large portion of men that do have an impact from it and aren't, aren't feeling like there's a space for them to speak out about it or they don't even know what to do about it. Yeah. Yeah. And all, you know, we can be, we can offer those compassionate spaces and Mm -hmm. even for, for the men that don't have any, you know, correlation with that. Um, it's more just like normalizing it and Mm -hmm. being like, okay with it, you know, and inviting the conversation. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. But just like you've done here. And I just want to thank you so much for holding this beautiful space and just having this awesome podcast. And, uh, yeah, I think you're doing an incredible job at providing this education to the world. So I admire and appreciate you and, um, thank you for the opportunity just to be on to share and speak. Oh my gosh. I, yeah, this has been an amazing, uh, amazing encounter with you and, uh, maybe we can do a full episode on on circumcision and kind of dive deep into your research about all of that and discoveries. Um, okay, and girl, you just let me know when. Okay. <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> all right, well, we're going to sign off. Okay, thanks so much, Margo. Bye. Yeah. I really hope that today's podcast was somewhat enlightening, something that you could relate to. And I know for sure that I really benefit from this talk with Susan and I look forward to seeing everything that she continues to cultivate in her practice and the lives that she gets to touch. If you want to hear more episodes, go to thepsycho.com and if you're looking to find more of Susan, you'll find the links in the description below. Music is Face In It by Fallen for Autumn on Instagram. Go ahead and give her some love and I hope to see you guys next time. Wrap your hands around my waist and bury your face in it. Around my